Hello and welcome to episode two of Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me as always is my co-host Rob Laborges. Hello everybody. And if you were with us last week, we talked about the phenomenon that was Tim Burton's 1989 Batman and the three and three films that came out the following year, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Dick Tracy, and Darkman. Uh, today we will be discussing two projects, both from the writing and producing team of Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, 1991's The Rocketeer and the 1990 TV adaptation of DC Comics superhero The Flash. But Rob, we'll begin with The Rocketeer. And, um, and, and you know, The Rocketeer is, a, for those who don't know, it's the story of a down-on-his-luck flyboy named Cliff Secord who comes across a jetpack. Uh, that was manufactured by Howard Hughes. This is just, it takes place in the late 30s. So just as war in Europe is on the horizon, and uh, while Cliff uh, comes across this jetpack, it is at the same time being pursued by Nazi agents um, who are headed by uh, by Timothy Dalton, you know, then, then incumbent James Bond, Timothy Dalton, uh, playing a, uh, a, a character inspired by... Uh, Errol Flynn. So, uh, and yeah, Rob, what are you? What are your thoughts on the Rocketeer? I also had not seen this movie in a very long time. I thought it was fantastic. We had touched on this before uh, last episode, talking about the Rocketeer just slightly, and that the fact that this is a movie whose reputation has grown over time, cult classic kind of comes in. What I find interesting. Again, we touched on a little last week. This is a movie that, unlike Batman, does not have a foot in the future and the past. It's no. firmly in the past. Um, not dissimilar from a later Joe Johnston movie, Captain yes. America, the first Avenger, I think. Uh, and what I find interesting is that at the time, it was a time of change. People were looking forward. We, the country was about to elect Bill Clinton. It's um, true. And so... A leaf was turning, you know, Kurt Cobain was about to be wearing dresses, Tupac and Biggie were out. This was a, a, a time where we were transitioning out of the 80s into the 90s. This movie, very much a love letter to the past. As you get out of the time period when it was made, and people can appreciate it just for what it is, I feel that that is partly why its reputation has grown, is just the context around the film is so different now, that people yeah. can appreciate what was there all along. Uh, Rob, I think that's that is a hundred percent true. A little background on the Rocketeer um, is that it's unlike you know we're going to talk about some other films later in the series that um, that are based on characters from what I would refer to the pulp era, the you know the the late twenties to late thirties, um, like the Shadow and the Phantom. Um, and the Rocketeer is a character that while it, it it mimics those, it actually didn't come out of that time. The the original comic on which it's based was released in 1982, and and it is an homage to these pulp characters of the 30s and 40s. In particular, there was a serial in a Republic Pictures serial in 1949 called King of the Rocket Men, and King of the Rocket Men was the first of several Rocket Men serials, which weren't actually sequels, but they just kind of used the same costume because they invested a lot in this Rocket Man costume. But every time it was a different character who was wearing it, and um, that 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 Rocket backpack, you know, it, it comes out of that that period, which 
I think you can't talk about Rocketeer without at least touching a little bit on Indiana Jones because I feel like there's a very there's a very Indiana Jones feeling to this movie, and part of it is the time, uh, but part of it is just sort of the sense of adventure. Um, in that way, it's very much a departure from Batman. It does have that feel of looking towards the serials in the early days of Hollywood, the adventure serials, and kind of trying to recapture that magic and update it for a modern audience. Um, I think in the case of The Rocketeer, what's interesting is while both Indiana Jones or Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Rocketeer are set in the past, I still think Raiders felt more modern in 82 than The Rocketeer did when it came out because I think there is just still... Again, more of that love letter of the past. There are other reasons I would say that I would bring up later on as to also why I feel the Rocketeer is uh, did not feel as modern at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it would have been interesting to see uh, what happened had happened to the Rocketeer had it come out in the early eighties. Um, you know, in the way, you know, kind of immediately after Indiana Jones. And I know uh, that we, we are planning at some point to do a, a series of Get Me Another Indiana Jones and, and and many of the movies that came in the wake of that about treasure hunting and, and lost cities and that kind of thing. But I wonder if The Rocketeer might have done better in 1982 than in 1991. But as you say, I think it's it's a point well made. At the time, so much was about looking forward. And this is a movie that's squarely looking back. I, I think it would have done better in the 80s, specifically 82, because I... Well, let's just get into this. Uh, again, yeah. I I do not ascribe any intent to any of the creators of these products. I sure. know nothing. I don't know these people. Sure. Uh, I don't know what was in their head. But I think this movie would have done better when Ronald Reagan was president. Yeah. The I, reason I say that yeah. is that... It, there's often a myth, I find, that uh, conservative people, conservative viewpoints can't make impactful art. I find this to be ridiculous. Anyone who's gone through film school and had to watch Triumph of the Will or Olympia, I mean, just to name uh, two big sure. ones. But, I mean, Death Wish, the Dirty Harry film series. I don't know that anyone uh, can say that those anything were impactful Anything from works Cecil of B. Art. DeMille. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and th- this is a film that, whether it was intentional or not, has a very conservative mindset in ways, some of the ways I think it's just they're, they're what, they're making boob jokes as they focus on Jennifer Connelly's chest in a shot like it's Animal House or something. Sure. Uh, so you have things like that, You, not to mention the kind of damsel in distressness. She is, her character is no uh, Marion Ravenwood. No. I would say. No. But uh, additionally... And look, I will 100% say, if you're saying, Rob, you're reading way too much into this. Sure. I would never say that. I, pro- I would never I say that. I probably am. Thank you, Chris. You're a, you're a real... That's, that's what, that's real what we're friend. here to do. <laughs> um, the literal villain of this movie, played by Timothy Dalton, who is kind of an Erwin type. fantastic, I might add. <laughs> oh. Fantastic. It it's just interesting to me because he is the... Defeat Hollywood yep. actor who will go around and be duplicitous and steal your woman, but he is secretly an enemy of the state working for a foreign power intent on America's destruction, spreading their loose values through decadent art. 
I mean, this could be... This is like a Joseph McCarthy wet dream of a villain plot. Uh, that is true. <laughs> All of what you say is true. It is worth noting that that um, that that the um, the character played by Timothy Dalton does insist that he does his own stunts. Yes, he does true. not bring in a stunt man, so he, at least he's got that going for him. Uh, <laughs> if nothing else, I, I want to say I, I, I'm a. If you listen to this, where this is episode two, but if you continue to listen to this podcast, you'll find out very soon that I'm a big James Bond fan. And in particular, I'm a big Timothy Dalton fan because he was the incumbent James Bond when I was wa- first, dis- you know, sort of began watching those movies. And I think this is, I've, I've, I've for long believed he was sort of, uh, you know, under underappreciated in that role. And here's a case where he just I, I, it has the opportunity to kind of let loose and, uh, and show what he's capable of, as opposed to his very buttoned-down, um, you know, kind of gritty, realistic, um, you know, interpretation of Bond. I'll say just it's not part of the show, but uh, in, in or our topic today. But uh, Timothy Dalton walked so Daniel Craig could run in the role of James Bond. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's so this is you know it was it's funny because this movie spent most of the '80s in development, um, but it wasn't greenlit until. Batman came along and was a big hit and everybody was looking for that next uh, comic property. A lot of them, you know, set in in the 1930s, which uh, in hindsight feels like it doesn't quite mesh with the 90s and, uh, and, and is more... I watched this movie and felt like it was more uh, tonally in line with where the Marvel Cinematic Universe has gone. There's a, there's a light touch to the Rocketeer um, that is very different from Tim Burton's Batman and some of the other um, um, films of that era. Absolutely. It has that humor that the Marvel films do. And some of that, you could say some of the roots of that come in a little bit of the 80s action humor, but it is different. It It's not so focused on pure puns um, right. or or delivering kind of batman tv show-esque uh one-liners what a way to go go they're not really doing things like that just like the the modern superhero movies of today are not doing that either but rocketeer as you say does have that lighter touch it does inject kind of those little asides those little winks uh trying to keep you rolling and my my guess is that it it helps just to suspend your disbelief a little bit as the story gets a little more fantastic uh grounds it a little bit more in a way for for people and it makes me like the uh, Cliff's, uh, you know, his first encounter. He, he, you know, they find this rocket um, that that, you know, in their in their hangar of their plane, you know, and uh, and he tries it on, and and it kind of goes all amuck, and he, you know, he ends up flying all over the place, and finally landing in a, um, you know, in 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 a in a pond, and the first thing he says is, "I like it," you know. That's and it reminded me of. Um, the scene in, in the first Iron Man movie after he tests out the the suit mm-hmm. in his in his garage and well I can fly you know it's that it, it, there's that 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 lightness to it despite the fact that oh hey this could have just killed you but it's the excitement of of doing it um, which is great because that that tells the audience in a way what they should be thinking about the situation uh, how the characters yeah. are reacting to it is giving you. And because these movies do vacillate in the Rocketeer, it vacillates between action where you are supposed to worry and action mm-hmm. where you're supposed to be along for the ride, be having fun. Sure, uh, it's a movie in love with being a movie. Like it, it is, 
it, yes. it, 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 it is it is in love with Hollywood. It is in it's a beautiful showcase of Art Deco Los Angeles. Uh, the climax of the film takes place at Griffith's Observatory. Um, it's it is very much uh, a love letter to its its uh, to that time. It, and 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 yeah, we talked uh, last week about Darkman and how Darkman drew from the 1940s, 30s, and 40s Universal horror films. Uh, in this film, there's a character, the henchman to the main villain, um, the character of Lothar. Uh, very much inspired by uh, a real-life actor named Rondo Hatton, who had played a character called the Creeper in the 1940s Universal horror films, um, and two of them in particular, House of Horrors and The Brute Man, and and the look of that character is lifted wholesale from uh, from Rondo Hatton, uh, you know, even even down to the Hollywood Land sign. I mean, uh, you know, again, we're we're gonna mm-hmm. we're not worried about spoilers for a thirty-plus-year-old movie, um, but you know, at the end, and this is another movie where the villain uh, not only falls to his demise, but he does so while on fire, and he destroys the land in the Hollywood Land sign, um, which I mean, it's just and I believe this has to be the highest height any of the villains fall from. Because he's in a zeppelin. Out of the Zepp- yeah, he's in yes, a zeppelin. he's in a zeppelin. I, I jumped on your on your uh, on your bit there, but yeah, he's in a zeppelin. It's 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 um, over the Hollywood Hills. If I'm remembering correctly, this is one where the villain's own greed is used against him. Absolutely, where he is taking the rocket pack, which uh, had been dinged earlier. Uh, yes. in a in another sequence where there was a hole in the in the jet pack, and it was established, hey. Rocketeer, you can't you can't use this or it would explode. If, if it is leaking, uh, if it is leaking fuel, yeah. it's a problem. And they cover they they have that ding and they cover it with a piece of gum, which is Cliff's thing. Thank he chews you, Mr. Gum. Arkin. And when yeah, exactly. And then he he goes. Uh, Alan Arkin plays uh, Cliff Secord, the main character, Cliff Secord's mechanic, uh, and uh, and and he covers the the little hole with a piece of gum that Cliff had been chewing, and Cliff takes that off at the key moment. Uh, and then hands over the rocket pack to Timothy Dalton. Uh, Which is a nice way, again, with, with that conservative mindset of uh, you're going to be okay with violence under certain circumstances. Which, for me, I always consider that a, a conservative mindset, and frankly, a traditional human mindset. That violence is sure. bad, except in this area when violence is good and to be celebrated. So, the, I mean, he's cold-bloodedly murdering him um by explosion he knows he's going to do it but there is that that one step remove that you know if dalton's character hadn't tried to take it and tried to leave them to die then he would not have died um so you do have that one step removed to soften it which you know makes it a little more amblin a little more a little more and uh, it's um you know it's it's a great example of a setup that you don't realize is a setup which is one of the tricks I think with the best writing is you're setting up things for later and you don't the audience doesn't know you're setting it up and the gum bit is a is a real good one. Oh yeah, I mean the the whole adaptation of uh, Dave Stevens' uh, graphic novels by the writers is great. Th- and as you say, this is a movie that there really isn't any fat. They use the whole the whole animal, yeah. and there are a lot of setups and payoffs in this movie that I think are. I mean, it's one of the things that makes it so fun to watch is that it 
it never feels over tight, but it is kind of one of those clockwork movies where everything has purpose and they're moving along. And it's just, it's, it's so wonderful to see movies that, that are that streamlined. Yeah, everything, even like the opening chase sequence where the FBI is chasing, uh, basically in, in the film, Timothy Dalton's uh, uh, Nazi agent has hired a group of, of gangsters, uh, of, of mobsters. Uh, Italian-American. Italian-American mobsters headed by Paul Sorvino, who has, uh, and who's great in the movie. And, um, you know, and the, so at the beginning, the, the mobsters are, 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 have stolen this rocket and are being chased by the FBI and they stash it in the hangar of, uh, that, that, that the main character, Cliff Secord, is using for his plane. And as the chase is going by, you'll see a billboard for the uh, the movie that um, that that, that uh, the Timothy Dalton character is in. So it's it's all it, like it's very you know they're setting up that, and it's all very well done. Um, even yeah. even the diner near the airfield, which in the beginning oh, yeah. feels like it is just color. It is not just color. The fact that Cliff is a regular at that diner and won't yep. eat anywhere else, which is established in a character moment earlier, comes into play later when the bad guys are looking for him and it get does to see, see that photo of him on the wall that only comes with being a regular at a diner by an airfield. Um, what, I, what I would also... We, we've touched on a, a bunch of the people in this movie, um, which just the whole cast of yeah. this film is incredible uh from from top to bottom i just love everybody even the people who might not be na household names who have um roles just in that diner or in the in the uh on the movie uh, set terry o'quinn uh you would later go on to to play lock on lost uh plays howard hughes who invented the the rocket pack I mentioned earlier, is it based on a, on a comic that, that debuted in 82, written by, uh, by Dave Stevens? And uh, in the comic, uh, it was not Howard Hughes who, uh, who created the rocket pack. In the comic, it was a character that was a thinly veiled version of the pulp hero, Doc Savage. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, it, it's another nod to that era uh, Doc Savage, which, uh, you know, was one of the big, in some ways, was uh, Doc Savage as a character was a precursor to Superman. Uh, he was a human being, but he was a scientist. He was, uh, you know, he was a, a jack of all trades. Uh, and he even, you know, so similar to Superman, and again, pre precursor to Superman, had a Arctic hideout called the Fortress of Solitude. Um, there was a movie made of Doc Savage in the 1970s, which we won't cover at this, but is, uh, is a fascinating look at sort of... A, a pre-Superman version of what a superhero movie uh, was, uh, produced by George Powell. Uh, One thing I wanted to bring up was just Johnston's uh, direction in this movie and the visuals. Um, beyond the, the sets and the, the costumes, it really is mm -hmm. just wonderful. There, um, a great example of just things that I love visually in this movie mm -hmm. is when Cliff is flying and the oil uh, splatters. Oh, yeah. In that in that fight sequence, uh, yep. the oil splatters all over the cockpit, and he can't see. And you just have the shot of the oil splattered cockpit, and you're you're on it long enough to realize this is a problem. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, boom! The fist punches through the cockpit shield from inside, 
And now you see the hero revealed and he can see. And it's just such a wonderful little moment. And that there are things like that, I think, sprinkled throughout this movie that just make it uh, a joy to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is this was a movie that it, it didn't necessarily do great in theaters when it came out in the summer of 1991. Um, but, it, you know, th- that was the summer that Terminator 2 was the, the, the big box office champ. Um, and uh, it, and I think, again, as we talked about, it had to do with it was a movie very much looking backwards at a time that was not looking backwards. But once you kind of are... are you get out of that time. This was a movie that did very well on home video. As you move, uh, you know, into the 21st century and you in the streaming age, um, it's a movie that that has, uh, I think, done very well on Disney Plus and grown its audience, where it's now readily available. Um, and and while you know, this is one of those things where I'd say, in a better world, we would have had a Rocket Tier trilogy in the 90s. Um, we we may get a, a follow up to this, uh, you know, a legacy sequel down the road because uh, and there's been talk of it of, of picking up the Rocketeer story, you know, a decade or so later. Um, uh, and I'd love to see it because it's it's just so delightful and and such a such a fun movie uh, to revisit. One other thing I did read that if they had done a sequel at the time, if that had been successful, it would have been based on one of the later comic book stories uh, called Cliff's New York Adventure. And uh, two two things. One, uh, you can just imagine visually what it would have been like to have the Rocketeer in New York and zooming in and out of the skyscrapers there. It would I I mean the that would have been tremendous. And uh, in that in the the comic book, the sequel features him crossing paths with a character uh, very similar to the Shadow. So the first the first series has a Doc Savage esque character. Uh, the second one has a Shadow esque character, which were the two big Street and Smith Publishing pulp characters, and in some ways the the precursors to Superman and Batman. We will we will talk about the Shadow movie that came out in the '90s uh, in in an episode to come. Uh, and uh, you know, you, it's no secret that I am a big big fan of that character. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's terrific and. Um, Oh, well, one other one other little fact that uh, this was the movie that reopened the El Capitan Theater after Disney purchased it and did a multi-million dollar renovation. This was the first movie to premiere uh, in June of '91 at the uh, at the restored El Cap Theater, which, if you live in Los Angeles, you know is a is a great place to see a movie and one of the great screens in town. Uh, so we move now from the Rocketeer on the big screen to the small screen because you know. Uh, there was, a, you know, these things are not limited to movies. You often have television shows that that try and capitalize on the success. And from the same writing team uh, of Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo came the 1990 Flash TV series, uh, which debuted on CBS in in 1990. Um, Rob, do you, did you watch The Flash when it was on back in the day? Uh, I did indeed. Now, I can say for certain that I did not get to see every episode. This was in a time when ah, there were there were no DVRs, there was no streaming. It was You had uh, a VCR. You must have had a VCR, Rob. Could you not set it? Um, for programmed timing like that, it was just not happening most of the time. I, I would be there to record stuff that I wanted to keep, but uh, if it was trying to record something when I was away, it just, no. I had I had a library of tapes of all sorts of things, and uh, 
you know, I, I definitely watched that. I was a big fan of the Flash series of 1990. It, it was one of a handful, and it only lasted one season. Uh, it was canceled by CBS uh, in in 1991. But it did get the full season, I believe. It right? did get the full season. Yes, it did get the full season. And it did well. Uh, the problem with The Flash is that it was a very expensive show to produce. And if it wasn't a breakout hit, it, it, it just it didn't make its money back. It was up against... Um, both uh, the Cosby Show and The Simpsons uh, at at the time, which it was just it, it didn't it didn't bring enough audience in. I really liked it. I rewatched the pilot. I rewatched a couple of episodes um, just before this, and I, I you know I think it still holds up. Uh, a little background. I mean, the, the Flash character obviously uh, has been in a a more recent television series on the CW that uh, has made appearance in the DC extended universe. Um, and uh, development on this show began in the late 80s uh, for a completely different show. It was originally uh, Bilson and DeMeo were hired to develop a series called Unlimited Powers, which featured an entire team of DC characters, including an older version of The Flash. And uh, the tone of that show was more in the line of Watchmen or uh, The Dark Knight Returns, some of the darker, grittier comics of, of the 1980s. Um, Unfortunately, the show didn't didn't get picked up, and uh, from that though, Bilson and DeMeo began to develop a more traditional solo Flash so that got greenlit in 1990, uh, only a few months after Tim Burton's Batman had uh, had ruled the box office in the summer of 1989. Now, Bilson and DeMeo, I think, uh, just to give a little background on them, a very little, uh, <laughs> I, I should do more research, but. This is the writing team that uh, brought the Transfers film series, yes, to life. Yes, we'll we'll get back to that in a moment. Yes, we will come back actually, to Transfers. It it figures into the Flash pilot. Uh, it they does. also did this movie in in addition to the Rocketeer. Uh, this movie Arena, which I would highly recommend to anyone. It I have not a, seen um, that. Yeah, it, it's fun. It's a it's a you're a space prisoner fighting an arena type movie against aliens and things. It well, there is, you go. Uh, it's it's if you like that sort of thing, it's a good one. And I do most like recently, that sort of though, thing. most recently, *The Five Bloods*, uh, yeah, the Spike Lee film. Uh, yeah, and and it's uh, it, they 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 did a number of shows through the '90s uh, that lasted longer than *The Flash*. Um, I, I will say it's it's if you watch the pilot, and I and I did, you, you'll feel the the Batman overtones with uh, with the Flash. I mean, it, it's you have a Danny Elfman title theme that feels that it's very akin to Batman. Um, you have the, some beautiful matte paintings of Central City that are, look like they could be, uh, you, know, the, you know, straight out of Batman. Uh, and the suit, the Flash suit, would not be, uh, would not have been what it was if not for the, the inspiration of the rubberized suit from, from Tim Burton's Batman. Um, oh, sure. And, and that suit, um, they, the writers clearly had a good relationship with Dave Stevens, he's listed yeah. as conceptual designer of the Flash suit for the for the TV show, although it was uh, what Robert Short designed and created it. Uh, yeah, it was built by Stan Winston's company. Yes, and a little what the uh, on Wikipedia, the arbiter of all truth, uh, <laughs> it says that the the four Flash suits that they built cost one hundred thousand dollars. Oh my goodness, that's, that's uh... an expensive wardrobe. Yeah, and, and it's uh, apparently CBS originally did not want the classic 
Flash suit in the series. Instead, they wanted the Flash to have like a track suit with uh, LEDs on his sneakers. Um, but Bilson and Demand, <laughs> Bilson and Demand, knowing that that was a key component to the look of the character, they brought in Dave Stevens to do an illustration, and that was what convinced the network that the costume was viable. Um, and the costume is viable. It's, it's absolutely it's viable. It's absolutely. They just debuted a, a small teaser trailer for the. There's a, a Flash movie coming out with, uh, and that that's still that same basic costume is still. You know, that's it's one of those iconic DC Comics designs that. Uh, you know, why would you change? Don't you know? It's it's uh, it's not broken. Don't fix it. Um, like Batman, the series production design mixes various eras from the 30s to the 80s. But unlike uh, Batman, because it wasn't all shot on a soundstage, they really. They really went and found every Art Deco building in Los Angeles that they could. Um, the Star Labs building has a, an Art Deco exterior and has the, the very late 80s interior of uh, a lot of glass bricks and neon, which, uh, you know, is at the, the height, the cutting edge of, uh, of interior design at the time. Barry Allen, the interior of his apartment is, it is, that is, that is the epitome of late 80s, early 90s, um, just design in there. Uh, it's, it's. I still want to live in that apartment. I love that apartment. Absolutely. No, I, uh, I and, and absolutely. Uh, John Wesley Shipp, who played the flat, I think he was great on this show. And it was, it, he came back mm-hmm. in the, uh, the CW Flash series playing a couple different versions of the character, including, um, an older version of this Barry Allen. And I, and it, it, I, when I saw those episodes, it was great to see uh, him have the opportunity to revisit this character, which was cut short. Uh, Amanda Pays uh, is the second lead. I don't know if you remember Dr. Max Christina Headroom. Christina McGee. Oh, yes. I remember Max Headroom. Yes. Oh, she was on Max Headroom. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, Also in the new Flash as well, as, as yes. her character from this. Uh, yes. And another member of the cast also uh, reprised his role in the new Flash. Uh, was that... That uh, was... Um, Julio from the his the, the lab yes. assistant, yes. Um, uh, Alex Desert was is was the actor. Yes, yeah, um, who you may also know from Swingers and High Fidelity, and um, uh, as well as just being awesome. Yeah, no, he's terrific. I remember. I always remember his bit in Swingers where he's talking about, you know, hey, uh, I still haven't told my parents I didn't get Deep Space Nine. Um, <laughs> uh, Barry's now in the, in the they did tweak uh, the origin of the Flash a little bit. I mean, the actual origin of his powers is straight out of the 1956 comic panel uh, where, you know, a a bolt of lightning crashes through the window of his lab, hits a bunch of chemicals and and sprays Barry. Uh, They give him a bigger family life. Um, You know, his, uh, you know, he has an older brother uh, who was not a a character in the comics, uh, but they named Jay, uh, Jay, uh, uh, Alan, who uh, whose death in the pilot serves as kind of the hero motivation for uh, for Barry to take up the mantle of the Flash and stop the villainous biker gang led by uh, Nicholas Pike, uh, who was played by uh, by uh, oh god, and I should have had this in my notes, but he's he's played by an actor who was in a stalwart on uh, on eighty soap operas, Michael Nader. The Michael Nader, thank you very much. Yeah, whose uh, first credit was Beach Party and Muscle Beach Party way back in the day. Oh my. And yes, Beach Blanket Bingo. Uh, nice. Trip, but most well known, even including to this uh, little boy who had a television on that his mom was watching in the background 
Dynasty. Dynasty, was, yes. He was on Absolutely. That he was that's that, that's what I was thinking of too, Rob. Yeah, I Oh uh, yeah. I too had a mom who watched <laughs> Dynasty. <laughs> and um, Jay Allen played by Tim Thomerson. Tim Thomerson, who was the lead of Trancers. Yeah, Jack Death in the Trancers films. Uh, he's fantastic. He's also has been in many cult movies that I love. Um, yeah. Near Dark, uh, yep. Cherry Two Thousand, Fade. Oh, to we'll Black. talk about Cherry Two Thousand in a later <laughs> when we do our our Get Me Another Mad Max. We're gonna we're gonna talk about Cherry Two Thousand. But he had been an actor forever. His his first credit I looked up was an episode of Mannix. So nice. he was he was seasoned, well seasoned even by the time the Transfers movies hit. Uh, let alone when this came in. Uh, and he's uh, the whole cast again in this is is wonderful, or or at least wonderfully cast. Um, yeah. The the their father is fantastic, and um, you know I like the history uh with the family, the history of being uh, police. Uh, yeah, the brother, the one brother, uh, Jay being the detective out in the field, very manly. And, and, and a motorcycle cop. And a mo- yes, motorcycle cop. And Barry being the lab guy. He's the, the nerdy lab guy who perhaps his dad, he's not, he's not actively dismissing Barry, but he certainly is dismissing Barry and what he does for um, the police force. A nerdy lab guy, but let's say, I mean, a, a very good looking and, and, you know, in, in excellent oh, shape. Yes. I mean, he's, he's in the shape of a, of, of a, of an Olympic decathlon, you know, uh, you know. He, he is unlike any nerdy lab guy that actually exists in yeah. real life, uh, for sure. It, uh, <laughs> because that flash suit was, you know, had to be in good shape in order to, to wear that because that was, uh, that was apparently very heavy and difficult, uh, difficult to move around. So if you weren't in good shape, that was, uh, you were done. Um, but again, uh, like Dark, like Dark Man, the chemicals make the hero. Although this yes. is, as you said, based on the earlier. It's based on the '50s incarnation of the Flash, as opposed to the mm-hmm. original 1930s and '40s Golden Age version. Um, yeah. What, what I love most about the the whole sequence of getting the powers uh, is when he's in the hospital post explosion, and everyone <laughs> is. Oh, I, well, everything looks okay. We don't understand what's going on. And Barry wants to leave the hospital, and you just get the angriest, cattiest doctor who who just is, uh, is so <laughs> mad that Barry's going to leave the hospital. He just goes, well, I can't lock you up. <laughs> like, this seems very unprofessional to me. <laughs> um, in, the, in the pilot, I, I got to say, I think, uh, to reiterate, I think John Wesley Shipp was terrific in this role. He's got a line in the pilot where he's he's questioning he's goes in as barry allen to question one of the the suspects uh that they've captured and he starts talking about hey you i know what you saw out there you saw this red streak he's fast like a flash and i i swear it's the most genuinely naturalistic line delivery of that gives the name of the show i've ever heard it's it is so good um it's an interesting to note that CBS forbade supervillains, at, and the initially they the the first half of of the single series did not feature the, the Flash as a character has one of the best rogues galleries of any uh, comic book superhero up there. You know, with Batman and Spider Man, there's a whole list of of great Flash villains, and they were not apparently by order of CBS allowed to use any of them. So it kind of has that that uh, adventures of Superman, the '50s Superman series, where it's always it's fighting sort of regular criminals uh, at the outset. 
But with the pilot, what's interesting is with that restriction. So you're you're trying yeah. to follow in Batman's footsteps and capitalize on it for television. You're not allowed right. to have a Joker. So what do you do? And and this goes to the the opening night of the uh, of the pilot where you have a a motorcycle gang that is it feels vaguely almost like a Joker esque motorcycle yeah. gang. So they're they're stylizing. It's not quite the Warriors or something like that, but it's it's in that it's territory. Almost, you know, it's yeah. They have their own insignia and that that kind of thing. Yes. So they're trying to ape the henchmen of a supervillain, but just have yes. a regular guy at the front. I mean, what their lair, the the motors, the Dark Riders. I want the Dark Riders. Name them. Yes. Their their lair is is underground. I mean, this is it's almost like a supervillain lair. It's very similar to the Foot Clan's lair in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, it, it's you know it's it's basically this underground area where they have all the stuff that they stole and they can be you know they got the, the, the watching the big screen TVs. Uh, did you notice um, Eric Dari, the, the the actor who played Leo Johnson in yeah. Twin Peaks? Uh, was one of the, and this must have been shot around the same time because uh, it was it was nineteenth fall of nineteen ninety. So Twin Peaks was on the air currently when this when this uh, when this came out, and uh, and Leo Johnson makes an appearance. Um, and it's it, it, I'll say this: I I was a big fan of the show. As I mentioned, it was one of maybe uh, three or four shows around this time that only lasted one season, and that. Uh, you know, middle school Chris was really disappointed when they didn't continue on. Uh, there was this show, there was the Alien Nation TV series on Fox, which I thought was terrific, uh, and the Dark Shadows revival, uh, the NBC mm-hmm. primetime Dark Shadows revival, I was a huge fan of, and and was all three of those were ones I was very disappointed that they didn't uh, come back for subsequent seasons. Uh, but before it was, it did complete a full season, and uh, by about the halfway point of the, the season, that um, the prohibition on supervillains uh, got lifted. So in the later half of the season, you get some classic uh, Flash villains, including Captain Cold, uh, you get the Mirror Master, and perhaps most notably, the Trickster played by Mark Hamill. And I, I rewatched both of the Trickster episodes, and not only is Mark Hamill great, but Mark Hamill is great in a way that it is clearly the prototype for his version of the Joker, which he has become the, the, the most consistent actor to play the Joker over the last couple of decades, starting with the Batman animated series. Um, and this is clearly the, the trial run for, for his Joker. Absolutely. I, and in watching the pilot... I think one of the things that really hamstrung this show mm-hmm. is the fact that they were still shooting on film back then. Yeah. So the number of setups that you could do at a TV cost and on TV speed, really, the, the action sequences, while, while totally well done and fine for their mm-hmm. day, you just don't have the number of cuts that you do in yeah. even in, even in films of the time, let alone let alone now. I mean... Heck, I mean, a lot of television shows now <laughs> probably have more cuts in their action sequences than the films of the 90s did. Right. But uh, when you go go to this, to TV, it just winds up, you know, it, it bogs some of those sequences down where you really look like you're watching at times the rehearsal of the stunt sequence uh, rather than a filmed 
action sequence. And I mean, it's no fault of anyone back then. It really is just the limitations of what they were working with. Well, they were really trying to do a sort of a Batman caliber, you know, one hour movie on a television budget. Now, it was a big television budget, but it was still a television budget in the 90s. You know, you're not talking about the modern streaming era where, you know, you have you know, $10 million, you know, an episode budgets. I mean, this was the, you know, um, yeah, this was, this was a classic network television show where you had a pattern and yet, you know, you had some episodes that go over and some episodes you have to go under in order to keep those, that budget at pattern. Yeah. I think the pilot was, they were listing it as 6 million, but the uh, weekly episode was around 1.6 million, which was Mm -hmm. high for its day, but it's, you're, it's not going to get you Batman the movie. Yeah, that's uh, you know, and and uh, it, it was. It's a shame because it was it was really kind of bending the curve. I mean, the the last big comic book based TV series before this was probably The Incredible Hulk in the late seventies and early eighties, um, which mm-hmm. is a, you know a fundamentally different model. Um, you know, the Hulk is basically. The fugitive, where he turns into a giant green rage monster once every episode. Uh, whereas here, you're trying to do something that is more kind of a traditional comic book style uh, series that we is now common. I mean, now you have so many of them that you have you know whole streaming services devoted to them. But at the time, was not was not done. I do want to bring up uh, the point that I've loved harping on a little bit, which is that. This definitely still feels tonally uh, Reagan era. True. So again, I think it's a, it's a little more of the conservative mindset. If you're just doing action movie tropes, this stuff might come up. I you know so right. it's it could just be that. But for instance, I know what Jay Allen at one point is is telling the, the he's yelling at the damn journalists to back the police. Uh, yeah. The, your journalistic coverage is why we're losing this war against the Dark Riders. And I'm like, woo, that's some Vietnam stuff. Right. Um, it's all the bad press. That's what we can't defeat anyone. Uh, and then at one point, I think he, uh, no, Barry, Barry himself uh, is telling one of the, the Dark Riders, uh, I realize how an unhappy childhood probably led you to this, but that's no excuse. And then I think he <sighs> knocks, knocks the guy out or whatever. Well, that's what you got to do. It, you, a man's got to do what a man's got to do, Chris. Um, right. But again, this is all, you know, when you're watching the show, it's all fun. All the action, uh, you know, as far as it being entertaining, uh, if limited, it's it's all there. Um, yeah, it, it, it was, I mean, this this was a case of their, you know, they were, they were really trying to do something, you know, that, that, that they just was a little bit of beyond the means of network television in 1990. And and it's it's bending the curve in that way. Yeah, it's a. I do remember they they have a, the, the reporters are not they have a a, a, a Morton Downey Jr. esque character <laughs> played by Richard Belzer, uh, who is the, the like the talk show guy. Uh, you know, just before he would become uh, Detective John Munch on uh, on first on Homicide and then about forty five other shows. Uh, here he plays uh, Joe Klein. The, the reporter, but not just a reporter, but like kind of commentator, uh, uh, you know, of uh, and perpetual thorn in the side of the Central City Police Department. Definitely depicted as a, a little sleazy. A little sleazy. You know, it doesn't, the, the you know, again, we come back, no news is good news with Joe Klein, which, uh, you know, that's, so it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, 
clearly at the at the time that you know the press was was you know was viewed by the establishment as well you know if they just stop reporting bad things well then bad things don't really happen and we see uh, it's unfortunately a, a you know an attitude we see now as well uh, that is not that has not gone away it's an evergreen exactly it is it is um, yeah a perennial let's let's say you know yeah. let's say that it will bloom <laughs> again um, yeah so there's a there's a great episode later uh, in the the show where uh, he the flash encounters the protector of central city in the 1950s uh, who is known as nightshade and it's a it's a great kind of shadow esque uh, character who uh, you know who 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 was who, who teams up with Barry and uh, you know kind of discovers his uh, his his you know, thirst for justice once more uh, and yeah, he's he's very similar to some of the characters from Watchmen, uh, the current the current uh, series, the the recent series, as well as uh, the original uh, the original miniseries. So uh, yeah, it's it's a terrific. It, it it feels very much. You know, they have that. There's that moment in Batman where the Batwing flies up and is silhouetted against the moon, kind of giving. They do the exact same shot where there's a lightning bolt that crosses the moon, and it's like, oh, there's the Flash symbol. You've created it. You know, right there. Uh, they have a uh, bit of the "you made me" moment as well, similar yes. from uh, the Batman, which had yes, a double "you made me" movement. There's that was a here it's 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 just the single but there was the double there and it was you know again it was a show that I think was bending the curve and uh, you know wasn't quite television wasn't quite ready to to do something that was that was that that had that much heavy lifting in terms of budget and uh, mm-hmm. you know as you said even even a couple of years later um, you know shooting that digitally would have made a, a, a lot easier than on film. I mean, it, it, I mean, this, this is the, in some ways the template, although, uh, for what they did with the CW, uh, turning yeah. it into a very superhero heavy. And, and it's interesting too, uh, what Supergirl that they were making for CBS that first season, very yep. similar to the flash where it was doing well, but not well enough to be on CBS. But instead of having to cancel it in the modern era, they could shift it to where it was appropriate over to CW. Um, and they also figured out make your heroes younger for television and barry yeah barry was uh, probably in his is early to third he was that sort of television 32 you know where he's he's you know he's in his 30s old enough to be an adult um but but you know it's still okay he's it's interesting he's got a fiance in the pilot um who then disappears from the series she was she was you know a a a main member of the cast in the pilot but then uh they didn't continue on because i think they felt barry was better off as a free agent yeah because they they set it up as if it's going to be kind of a a love triangle between barry the girlfriend and then uh you know the doctor with their relationship a little bit not that they go anywhere with the that in the pilot but um it's clearly set up to be tense uh the girlfriend even mistakes their relationship um yeah i did not know that they uh they uh they asked her for the series yeah, and I it, it, she's good, um, you know. But I think they just they realized that that character, um, it, it it cut off possible avenues for Barry Allen, both with both with uh, Tina McGee as well as you know the guest star of the week. Um, uh, 
the two trickster episodes that I watch both feature uh, Joyce Heiser of uh, just one of the guys as a private detective who uh, gets involved with the case but also uh, has a romantic involvement with uh, with Barry and becomes one of the few people to know Barry's identity as the Flash. Um, so yeah, again, it's the sort of thing, I, I don't know if that is on HBO Max. I would think that, that uh, the, the Flash series, like uh, many of the other DC shows, should be there. Um, uh, the Rocketeer is readily available on Disney+, Plus if, if you don't uh, have it on Blu-ray. But it is, they are both worth checking out. The Flash, uh, the, the, the Flash is, is, you know, has a dated structure because it, it was television of the, of the 90s. Um, but I think the Rocketeer feels uh, fresher now than it probably did even when it when it came out in theaters because it's you know again it's it's the time of of we weren't you know it, it was just the right movie at the wrong time unfortunately, um, which yeah and that that brings us to the end of today's episode um, you know uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening and we hope you'll come back next week when we are going to discuss the somewhat controversial sequel to Batman Batman Returns. Um, which is, uh, whereas the, the original Batman was kind of several forces at work, um, were, you know, uh, made uh, the original Batman, uh, Tim Batman Returns is very much a Tim Burton movie. Uh, and we'll also talk about the 1994 film The Crow, starring the late uh, Brandon Lee. Uh, and again, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob LaBorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and follow us on Twitter at GetMeAnotherPod. And we hope to see you next week as we continue to look at what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another. <laughs>